Welcome to the podcast Genderfuge, recorded this season in Social Theory and Issues, a Sociology and Anthropology class at Mount St. Vincent University. My name is Kellyanne Malinen. Today, using a student-generated interview guide, I will be having a conversation with Emma Cameron. Emma is a graduate student in health promotion at Dalhousie University. For her thesis, she is examining the postnatal health care experiences of resettled Syrian refugees in Nova Scotia. Today, we're primarily interested in Emma's work with the Rainbow Refugee Association of Nova Scotia. Students prepared for creating this interview guide by reading Homonationalism as Assemblage, Viral Travels, Effective Sexualities, a 2015 article by Jasbir K. Poir. Students created interview questions that in many cases were informed by Poir's reading, but that would nonetheless make sense to listeners unfamiliar with this work. Um, so the first question that I want to ask you today, Emma, mm-hmm. is what is the Rainbow Refugee Association? Yeah, so the Rainbow Refugee Association of Nova Scotia is a grassroots nonprofit society, um, and we were established in 2011 with a few goals. So um, first to advocate for um, LGBTQ refugees uh, across the globe, um, and second to support and privately sponsor LGBTQI plus um, refugees to come and live here in, in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And how long yeah. have you been associated with the organization? For two years now, yeah. Um, so how do, does Rainbow Refugees come into contact with the refugees that it supports? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we have a couple different options for how we um, kind of find out about refugees. Um, so I'll try and give you a little bit of background on how refugees actually get referred um, to us. So there's one called the... Um, it's a sort of a, a way that refugees come into Canada called the, the Blended Visa Office Referred Program, or the BVOR program, as I'm going to refer to it as. Um, so this is actually a big list of refugees who have been identified by um, the UNHCR, which is the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. Um, and so this is an international organization that works um, globally to identify refugees, ensure that they meet sort of the refugee criteria, and then um, they're responsible for um, resettling only about 1% of the world's um, refugee population in a number of high-income countries, including Canada. So the UNHCR puts forward sort of a list of, of available refugees, and the Canadian government um, sort of does their own background medical and security check on everybody, um, and then uh, they make these folks available um, through ISANS, which is the Immigrant Services Association of Nova Scotia. Um, so basically, ISANS gives us this list every so often when um, our organization is actually ready to support a refugee, um, and from there we just kind of pull whoever fits our mandate, meaning that they have to be... Um, LGBTQI plus in some way, um, and that's the reason why they're fleeing their country of origin. So um, if we're looking for folks on this BVOR list that I've been talking about, um, we actually get half of their funding for the first year from the federal government, which is really nice. So that's kind of our preferred option. So they kind of come to us, we pick someone, and then they actually arrive within you know, one to three months usually, um, because they're kind of ready to go. They've done all of their background checks Mm -hmm. and everything. Um, But then the second option, which is sort of the more arduous choice, and we don't usually do it as often, is kind of someone reaches out to our organization directly. So um, either through Facebook or through our email or website, you know, they tell us that they're a refugee in whatever country and they're looking for help and they're being persecuted for whatever reason. Um, And so usually those folks are 
are either not formally a refugee yet or they're very early in the process. Um, so it means that it could actually take up to two years before they're able to arrive in Canada because they have to do all these necessary checks and paperwork. Um, so those are the sort of two routes that, that folks usually come to us through, but um, most often we go through the BVOR list because um, those refugees are kind of ready to go and ready to be resettled within about a month or two. But um, we do also accept people who directly come to us asking for help. It's just a lot more complicated. I see. Yes. Thank you. Um, So just for clarity, um, when you mentioned that the UNHCR is responsible for resettling 1% of -hmm. the refugee population, um, does that suggest that most refugees are resettled in other ways? Or does that suggest that most people who are um, on the the list of refugees are never resettled and Mm -hmm. never find a safe home. Yeah. So kind of a few options. So the UNHCR has a few different ways that they're trying to address the the refugee um, crisis. So one is that they try and um, work with governments to find a way to safely return folks to their country of origin. Um, But for conflict areas like Syria right now, where there's just ongoing conflict, um, significant destruction of infrastructure, um, folks aren't actually able to return there and probably won't for a long time. So Syria actually, Syrian refugees are are constituting the largest group of um, displaced people right now. but for other situations, eventually folks are able to return home. So that's kind of the go-to option for the UNHCR is to try and, um, you know, work to settle things down and then have folks return home. I see. Um, otherwise, they try to integrate in, in neighboring countries. Um, so for Syrian folks, there's a lot of people in Turkey, Lebanon. Um, and so those countries take a portion of people as well. Um, but a lot of people are living in what's called protracted situations. So um, they've been living in refugee camps for years or decades because there is no solution. And again, only 1% of the the refugees are, are being resettled and priorities given to vulnerable groups. So that includes like women, children, people with disabilities, LD, LGBTQ refugees, um, and people with complex medical needs uh, and families. So a lot of single men end up staying in refugee camps for a long time because mm. they don't fit into any of those criteria. Mm. Um, so unfortunately, there's just a huge number of people who just are living in refugee camps basically for the rest of their lives because there's no other option. Mm-hmm. It's a huge problem right now. And what do you think of those criteria? It sounds like in some ways single men are sort of paradoxically made vulnerable mm-hmm. by the criteria that assume that they're less vulnerable. Is that is that true? Do you see it? Do you, do, you, do you agree with me that that's a potential critique? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, obviously, I, I'm in favor of resettling certain vulnerable groups, like young children particularly. It's, yes. it's um, really hard on their developmental outcomes to, to be stuck in a refugee camp for a long time. Um, but what a lot of um, private sponsorships group private sponsorship groups like us do is they um, will set out certain initiatives to sponsor single men because they're kind of this neglected group of people. Um, But it's it's certainly a critique. But unfortunately, really, there's just not a lot we can do because the numbers are so small still. Um, Really, all of the, the countries who are able to take folks should just be 
upping their numbers. I know right. that's easier said than done, but that's really the solution. Yes. There's, there's only 28 countries accepting refugees right now. So Wow. Yeah. I would never have guessed such a small number. Yeah, yeah, very small. Um, and the United States uh, has cut their refugee numbers by almost a third. So they used to be the number one refugee-admitting country in the world, and um, now it's Canada because they've dropped their numbers by almost 60,000 a year. Okay. Yeah. Um, can you tell us about some of the situations that lead LGBTQ folks to um, become refugees in Canada? Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, so, unfortunately, right now there's 77 countries around the world that actually uh, criminalize same-sex relationships, um, and seven countries that actually punish LGBTQI individuals with the death penalty. Um, so, this is kind of the the key reason why people are fleeing. Um, so, just to give you a bit of background, so for someone to claim refugee status, um, one, they have to leave their country of origin seeking safety in a neighboring country somewhere else. Um, but there has to be a reason why they're doing so. Um, and so um, persecution is, is one of those reasons. So if folks are being persecuted because of their um, gender identity or their sexuality, um, that's grounds for refugee status. Um, so that's most of the reason why people are are becoming refugees, mm-hmm. um, either because of their sexual orientation, gender identity, gender expression, or even HIV status sometimes, because that can indicate, um, or historically it has indicated, um, that someone might be engaging in same-sex relationships. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'll just give you an example, because it's been the news in the news recently, um, and, and we've been sponsoring folks from Uganda for this reason. Um, so Uganda is one of the countries that actually punishes folks with um, the death penalty if mm-hmm. they're caught um, engaging in a homosexual activity, is what it's called. Um, and so that also includes punishing anyone who's associated with this individual. Um, and it also includes, um, activism groups who are trying to protect, um, LGBTQI Ugandans. Um, and as well, they can actually bring Ugandans who are living internationally home, like they can have them extradited, um, and then punished as well. So this is one of the most severe, um, cases, I guess, of, of a country, but yeah, it's very different from yes. here. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, have you heard or read any of the coverage that implicates um, the American preacher Scott Lively um, in what's happening in Uganda? And yes. I ask that because in our discussions of homonationalism in mm-hmm. this class, w- we looked a little bit at some um, articles about his activities. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know too much, but I do know that there were linkages made between his visits to Uganda and... I guess the timeline was similar between his visits and and the decision to implement that bill. Mm-hmm. Um, it's extremely troubling that people like this are kind of going and influencing politics of, of other countries that I would say have sort of a vulnerable government infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, so really disappointed to hear that and it's definitely alarming for us Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. so for listeners who might not be familiar with the situation the argument is that um, lively kind of spearheaded Mm -hmm. uh, in many ways the what's known as the kill the gays um, bill and the legislation that now exists Um, and so um, this is you know, a little bit ironic given the ways that, um, you know, according to um, theory like that of Puar, people in the United States tend to kind of other countries like mm. Uganda on the grounds that they're mm-hmm. not good to their um, LGBTQ folks. So yeah. sometimes these connections can be made um, suggesting that 
the U.S. itself or U.S. citizens are um, complicit uh, in um, these kinds of um, policies and mm-hmm. laws or, or mm-hmm. you know, perhaps Canadian citizens in some cases as well. Um, but clearly a very terrible situation in Uganda for yeah. um, queer folks living there. Yeah, absolutely. And so for the last year, at least, our organization has made it a priority to sponsor folks coming from Uganda. Um, a lot of them are living in, in there's a very large refugee camp in Kenya. Yes. Um, so that's where a lot of them have come from. But mm-hmm. um, I think we had three last year and um, we're sponsoring another one in a couple of months. So. And are you able to share with us any of the stories that you might have heard from those refugees? Are, is there anything mm-hmm. that's sort of public that you can share, or the, is that confidential information? No, I can share a little bit without sort of describing the background of the people. Yes. But um, basically in Uganda, I mean, obviously people aren't able to be open about their sexuality at all. Um, it's also um, often a place of extreme violence. Um, they don't have a great government right now. Um, so uh, one of our sponsors, her, her mom was murdered, Mm -hmm. um, and she had a young child. So that's why they decided to flee in addition to her being, um, queer herself. Um, but you know, family members being killed, um, no kind of follow-up investigation because of that, Mm -hmm. um, extreme poverty as well. Um, and very, very limited access to healthcare and other services like Mm -hmm. that. So it's really, um, not, not a great place, um, especially for LGBTQ folks. Um, so that's why most of the people we've sponsored have fled to Kenya, um, you know, to avoid dealing with this law. Um, and then we've sponsored them from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you've kind of described the process of deciding who qualifies for support from the organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I assume that sometimes those would be difficult decisions because yeah, you're absolutely. probably choosing among lots of um, people in need. Mm-hmm. Um, so is that how, is that how it goes? How does, how does the selection actually happen? I mean, they have to yeah. meet certain criteria. Um, but are there more people expressing need than, um, you can offer services mm-hmm. to as well? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so especially through that sort of private sponsorship route that I talked about where people are just directly, um, messaging us either over Facebook email or, or coming in through our website. Um, I would say we get at least one email every day from someone who's looking for help, um, which is really distressing to read yes, all of these emails because yeah. there's at least one every day. And, you know, we sponsor maybe up to 10 people every year, and that's our maximum. Yes. Um, so, you know, having an email come in every day, obviously we we cannot mm-hmm. answer all of those people, mm-hmm. but um, we have a lot of really well-connected um, people who sit on our board. And so oftentimes, um, especially if they already have relatives in Canada or something, we can try and refer them to other organizations and we have been able to help people come um, through that as well. But um, there's just so many people who who need a place to resettle mm-hmm. and, and we can't help them all. So really for us, it's it's timing. Um, so, you know, when we're financially able to have someone come and when we have the resources, um, you know, personnel wise to have someone, um, come to Canada. So we do sometimes commit to these people who, who do email us. But again, like I said, they usually take at least a year or two to come here. So that's like a long-term commitment for us, but, but we do usually just go off of that list that we get from from ISANS um, and just kind of pick. There's not a lot of LGBTQI folks um, on the list. Usually there's one or two at a time. Um, the list does get refreshed like every week or so. But that's kind of mm-hmm. deciding. So when we're able, we check the list and whoever's on the list, we mm-hmm. kind of... 
go for. But like I said, we do sometimes make priorities to sponsor folks from Uganda. We also tried to um, specifically sponsor um, lesbian women one year um, just because we had had a lot of men before that. So make these different goals, but but it's very hard Mm because, you know, there's over 25 million refugees. So it's not easy. (laughs) Are you aware how many organizations there are doing similar work across the country? Um, I don't know the exact number. Um, there are lots of other LGBTQI designated um, refugee groups. There's one in Vancouver, the Rainbow Railroad. Um, there's several in Toronto, Ottawa, Calgary. Um, mm-hmm. So we're not the only ones, but um, I think we're the only one in the Maritimes. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you make your decision in terms of who you're going to try and help to come to Canada, mm-hmm. and then what happens from there? How does the process work? Yeah, so with those people who are coming to us through that BVOR list, they arrive quite quickly. Um, but everyone kind of eventually comes the same way. They arrive on a plane. Um, we usually greet everybody at the airport. Um, and as a private group, we kind of take on all the responsibilities um, kind of that ISANS does when they're helping um, what's called government-assisted refugees. So we're responsible for um, their funding for a full 12 months. So mm-hmm. for a single person, that's $11,000, um, which is really not a lot of money for a person to be living off of for a year. But that's that's the commitment and that's in line with social assistance rates. So we have to fundraise that. Um, We have to find them accommodations, winter clothing, um, and sort of give them an orientation to life in Canada, Mm -hmm. show them how to get groceries, um, register them for a health card, show them kind of how to use the healthcare system. ISANS has a lot of additional programs as well that um, most of our refugees go through, but um, we're kind of responsible for those big things like the funding and housing and and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. If they have children, enrolling them in school, um, English language classes and and things like that. Yeah, it's a lot. (laughs) What kind of reception do LGBTQ plus refugees uh, typically have in Nova Scotia? Mm -hmm. Well, it's a very intersectional issue Mm -hmm. because um, obviously... Uh, Canada is more welcoming of LGBTQI plus persons than Uganda, let's say. But um, certainly we still have issues of xenophobia um, and and racism and, and sexism as well. So for, you know, women of color who are also LGBTQ mm-hmm. um, and a migrant who may not speak English, they're um, obviously relatively vulnerable to discrimination, mm-hmm. which is really unfortunate. But um we do have a lot of really great support and, you know, most people are very, very welcoming, but yes. unfortunately we do still have instances of, of, you know, xenophobia or racism, especially when we're trying to find an apartment for people to live. That's sort of where we sometimes encounter that, um, discrimination, I guess, mm-hmm. but I would like to say it's mostly positive. Um, we definitely have a good kind of welcoming queer community in Halifax and, and, um, we try and do a lot of social engagement with folks coming in, like taking them to drag shows and stuff like that to sort of like orient them to our queer community here. Um, so it's, it's mostly good, but again, there's still bumps along the way cause Nova Scotia is certainly not perfect. Right. Yeah. So aside from these forms of um, discrimination that Mm -hmm. you've mentioned, are there particular barriers to getting settled in that you have observed um, refugees encountering? Yeah, definitely. Um, So this is kind of where I do a lot of my um, graduate research, so looking at access to healthcare services, um, because it's a pretty common misconception, I guess, that, you know, we have free healthcare, so obviously healthcare should be equitable and easy to access for everybody. Um, 
but unfortunately that's not often the case for these folks. Um, so um, newcomers and refugees have um, sort of a separate health coverage plan called the Interim Federal Health Plan. Um, and it does cover a lot of the same things that we have, but for a lot of smaller clinics, there's administrative barriers. It's more challenging to bill, um, and people aren't always trained on how to use that. So sometimes they ask for folks to pay upfront for healthcare services. Um, as well, interpretation services aren't always offered for free. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's issues of confidentiality if people are bringing children or friends um, you know, to doctor's appointments with them, um, or if they don't have anyone and they're just trying to communicate with the healthcare provider um, mm-hmm. in English. And if that's not their preferred language, then that can be challenging, mm-hmm. um, both for the care provider and, and the individual seeking care. Um, so lots of language barriers. I've also heard that sometimes translators, you, you need to be careful because translators mm-hmm. don't always translate accurately, either mm-hmm. sort of intentionally um, for whatever reason or just uh, as a consequence of skill level. Yeah, and, and often, you know, if you request an Arabic interpreter, um, but the interpreter's from Egypt and your patient's from Syria, the dialect isn't the same. Right. Um, so there can be miscommunications there as well. And and especially in Halifax, we have a pretty small community, especially when you break down um, by language. And so sometimes there's, there's confidential issues because the person may know their interpreter because the community is not that large. So um, that's an issue as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, they sign confidentiality agreements, but people might not be comfortable if, if they if they know the person who's interpreting for them. And right. especially if it's like a gynecological appointment, um, you may not want that person there. No. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you've told us a little bit about the sort of policies and procedures that your organization navigates. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that you can add to what you've been telling us about, um, I guess I'm particularly interested in how government works or yeah. doesn't work um, when it comes to um, refugee settlement? Yeah, yeah. So um, one of the big issues that people talk about, and I think it's in one of your later questions, um, is sort of that 12-month cutoff. So we as a private group and um, ISANS as the group that helps government-assisted refugees um, is only technically responsible for helping um, newcomers for 12 months, so one year. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a lot of cases, that's enough. Um, but it's basically a drop-off of services after 12 months. Um, so at least in the private sponsorship world, we're often still available if people need help with something like, you know, they get charged on their internet bill and they don't know how to deal with that. We're obviously going to help them, um, even if it's after that 12-month window. Um, but obviously we've taken on more refugees since then, more mm-hmm. people have settled, and, and we're often preoccupied with other things. So um, that can be a bit challenging um, for, for newcomers, especially having sort of that more one-on-one um, you know, communication with us and then having to kind of be more independent right after 12 months can be challenging. Um, but that's just sort of how it works. And and that's how, um, the government does it as well. Um, and, and another big thing is, is the, um, social assistance rates. Um, obviously this is an issue that doesn't just apply to newcomers, but, um, sort of especially to, to new Canadians, because for many folks, they're not, um, uh, English is not always their first language, um, and so 
there's often a learning curve of adapting to English or French, depending on where they're living here, um, and potentially not having job qualifications or education transfer over from their country of origin. Um, So folks are often unemployed for a while, um, or they're underemployed, meaning that they're working a job that their, you know, original skill set is not suited for. Um, so um, sometimes people have to, to remain on social assistance for a little bit longer because of these um, restrictions in terms of our employability requirements and things like that. Um, but, like, the rate is laughable, which a lot of people know already. But, um, like, we get $11,000 for one person yeah. for an entire year. Um, and so it's challenging because most people can't afford a car, so that can make going to a job really challenging, mm-hmm. or if they have to access healthcare, really difficult. Um, you know, finding a place to rent is often hard. People live usually in Dartmouth or Sackville, which is again outside the city, so they're often commuting long distances. Um, and unfortunately, we try not to provide any extra funding that first year because then it ends up getting taken away because um, they just fall back on social assistance after that 12 month period. Right. Um, but like I said, this is not just affecting newcomers. It's it's anyone um, low income needing social mm-hmm. assistance. So um, would really love that to at least be above the poverty line. I yes, mean, it's, yes. it's really, really challenging, especially for um, um, people with kids, because paying for any extras like, you know, piano lessons or or any leisure activities or stuff like that is just not possible. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so do the rates go up if people have children or is yes. that... Okay. Yeah, so it's sort of a sliding scale depending on how many adults there are and how many children. But okay. I just know definitively it's around 11000 for a single adult. Adults. Yeah. Um, are there some strategies that the organization has found in terms of helping guide people in dealing with that level of poverty, I would say, um, mm-hmm. on their arrival? Yeah, um, so we try and be pretty realistic with people. Again, we don't give any more money for that first year because it would end up sort of falling back down. But um, we work with people to try and help them develop a budget um, so they know kind of the expenses coming in and out. Um, We have a lot of great people um, who help with furniture donations and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. And we try and help with sort of those initial expenses like furniture, clothing, um, you know, toys if there's kids or anything like that. So we try and cover that that first big chunk, because obviously, mm-hmm. you know, filling an apartment is really expensive. Um, and usually that's all by donation. And then just trying to budget and and be realistic and, and trying to have them um, get some education or job qualifications right away as soon as it's possible um, to help them be more employable. So they mm-hmm. do have, you know, an additional source of income. And as well, we try and... Um, resettle some of our folks together. Um, so we usually try and find roommates for people to make living more affordable. Right. Um, and so we have a few people living together who are, are all from Uganda. Um, so that's worked out really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really helps to cut, to cut costs yes, for them. Cause, yeah. um, as I'm sure most of, you know, housing, um, in Nova Scotia is very tricky right now, especially mm-hmm. in Halifax. Mm-hmm. Um, rent prices are going up a yes. lot. And Apparently it's harder to find an apartment here than in Toronto. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Which is amazing. Yeah. So again, we usually resettle folks in sort of more suburban areas like Clayton Park, um, Dartmouth, Sackville, because that's the only place that is affordable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
Um, it's a bit late in the interview, I suppose, to be asking you this, but um, I realized that I should ask you to tell us a little bit more about your role in the organization. So I know yeah. you're a board member, mm-hmm. um, but sometimes boards aren't really involved in the day-to-day workings of the organizations yeah. um, that uh, that they're representing. And I know I've seen you run off at least <laughs> once to deal with an emergency situation involving yeah. one of your families, and it sounds yeah. like you're quite involved. Yeah. Um, so tell us about that. Yeah, sure. Um, so we're totally volunteer run. We have no regular full-time staff people and no paid staff. Um, We're pretty small, so most of us don't just serve on the board. We volunteer in lots of other ways, um, and our board's quite small. So being on the board, we just sort of help with strategic planning, deciding who and when to resettle and how to fundraise, and we do events with pride as well. So Mm -hmm. coordinating some of that bigger stuff, but almost all of us help with resettlement tasks as well, helping people find jobs. Um, Some of our board members like house people for the first kind of four to six weeks while we try and find apartments. Um, So all of us are pretty extensively involved in sort of the resettlement um, requirements as well. Um, So like I I help folks finding furniture. We help moving people. I provide childcare for some of our families with young kids, um, take folks to medical appointments, um, you know, just anything. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, it's it's obviously complicated coming here and learning everything, like mm-hmm. even just figuring out how the TV and cable system works mm-hmm. here is something that you have to do. Um, so we all sort of help out with sort of that nitty gritty stuff, showing them where the libraries are and how to get groceries and, mm-hmm. and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Important work. Yeah. Very. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask if you could uh, comment on this story that mm-hmm. I'm sure um, you're familiar with of the 2019 suicide of a 29-year-old gay Middle Eastern man um, who had come to Canada as a refugee in 2016. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm going to draw a little bit here on um, the writing of Katie Highslop, who uh, was writing for the Taiyi um, about this about this, um, this very sad story. Mm-hmm. Um, she basically described uh, the death as a consequence of this refugee having slipped through the cracks of Canada's mental health care, housing, and resettlement services, um, and wrote that his downward spiral was compounded by pressure placed on the government, uh, placed by the government on government-assisted refugees to be self-sufficient within a year. So this is what you were referring to earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, she cites assistant professor of illustration at Emily Carr University, Daniel Drennan Awar, who wrote that the tragedy here was, quote, not the suicide of someone new to the West and unable to come to terms with aspects of identity that imply a former nightmare of original faith, family, faith, and culture. The tragedy is that of the alienation, extirpation, and annihilation of said family, community, culture, faith, and identity, the very essence and being of this man via what amounts to societal and cultural warfare. Um, The tragedy, he said, is a place historically and structurally devoted to displacement, dispossession, and disinheritance, feigning multiculturalism, diversity, and inclusion. So obviously, um, this is a very sort of negative take on the experiences that refugees may have Mm -hmm. on their arrival in Canada. Um, And I'm almost done here, but he later went on to um, ask how difficult then at long last to understand this narrative of coming undone, this abjectly suicidal reaction. Instead of a magnifying glass aimed at pathologizing this individual, I suggest a mirror be 
held up to this pathological society's mythical idealized self instead. Mm-hmm. Um, so really a condemnation of um, colonialism in Canada. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and so what I wanted to ask, uh, and I know you've had an opportunity to, to look at this in advance yeah. as well, yeah. is whether LOR's comments resonate with the experiences of LGBTQ plus refugees that you've known through your mm-hmm. work with um, Rainbow Refugees Association in mm-hmm. Nova Scotia. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And um, I've read this story and other similar stories, um, and I know that it often gets painted as like, oh, people just weren't given access to mental health services. It's just like, you know, the refugee system is to blame. Right. Um, Totally neglecting the fact that most of these people are very isolated, they're unemployed, um, experiencing usually um, xenophobia, racial discrimination, um, you know, any number of things like mm-hmm. this. Um, and so I, I also was kind of reminded of the, the case of, it was a nine-year-old Syrian girl um, named Amal al-Shtoui, um, who committed suicide in Calgary. Um, she's nine. Um, it was horrible. And I was rereading the article, and, and they kind of painted it as, again, this like, oh, well, she just didn't have access to mental health care services. That's what this was. Totally glazing over the fact that um, she was bullied so badly that her parents put her in a, in a different school. Mm-hmm. Um, and that uh, a quote from her parents from the other student said, even if you move to another school, they are not going to love you, the kids or the teacher. Wherever you go, you better just go kill yourself. Oh, wow. Absolutely horrible. And yeah. this is other nine-year-old children, yeah. um, you know, in a large metropolitan area, which is supposed to be more diverse and accepting, um, saying this to a nine-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was so bad that she committed suicide. And so, you know, absolutely, I think access to mental health care services for everyone is lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, but these issues tend to be glazed over mm-hmm. neglecting the fact that you know, we're a very white colonial society mm-hmm. who often is not accepting of differences. Um, xenophobia is absolutely on the rise. I mean, we have all right groups coming to Nova Scotia pretty regularly now. There was a mosque shooting in Quebec yes. within the last few years. And, you know, even in Quebec, they passed that law um, stating that, you know, women in, in government positions couldn't wear a hijab, saying that it was, you know, about religious symbols. But disproportionately targeting um, people of color, Muslims, Sikh individuals. So, again, like, I think we like to think of ourselves as this lovely, happy, utopian society, but um, it's certainly not true in many mm-hmm. cases. And and I think that's something that we have to explain kindly to our newcomers that, you know, even though we don't punish LGBTQ people by death here, it doesn't mean that everyone is accepting all the time mm-hmm. and that you're not going to encounter biases when you're trying to find a job and they notice that English is not your first language and you're a person of color. Um, you know, all of those intersections of race, gender, um, and immigration status uh, all certainly come into play. Mm-hmm. Um, so stories like these are they're so sad and, and very, very troubling. And, you know, we have to be better to to make everyone more inclusive, which is <laughs> way easier to say than do. But, um, you know, it's something that people don't always think about, but um, has a huge, huge impact. So do people tend to arrive then with the expectation that Canada is a bit of the utopia that sometimes Canadians themselves like to imagine it is? Mm-hmm. And then you're kind of suggesting that you have to let them down a bit softly? 
Yeah, well, I mean, I think it's all relative and, and it's different for everyone. So, I mean, also thinking of a lot of the situations where um, our newcomers have come from, they're just grateful to be here, mm-hmm. um, to not be in a refugee camp. It's it's obviously a huge change, mm-hmm. um, but that change is very hard. Um, and so, you know, all these people usually have to learn an- another language. Um, everyone that we've sponsored had to had to learn English as an additional language. Um, had challenges with employment. We had a lot of issues with job qualifications not transferring over properly, mm-hmm. so people had to repeat education. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've even had like bullying with school age children, and um, so you know, it's it's very great the way that the system is set up that, you know, so many people are coming here, but there's a lot of additional supports that are needed in that resettlement period, especially early on to, to help people really transition and and give them the right skills and, and, um, everything else to just make that sort of an easier transition because, you know, it's very hard, um, Mm -hmm. to leave your sort of country and your culture and your language. Um, so we do our best, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's very, very challenging. Yes. Yeah. Um, and in terms of those cultural differences that you've been talking about a little bit, um, mm-hmm. would you say that there are um, key differences in terms of how LGBTQI plus identity is um, either uh, defined or understood or experienced um, between Canada and some of the countries that refugees are coming from? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the biggest thing that, that we see is that um, at least people are able to be more open here. Um, everyone uh, that we've sponsored has has been pretty comfortable talking openly about their sexuality, which is a first for them because in a lot of cases... Um, it was dangerous to be openly homosexual um, or identify as a different gender. And so um, people are very grateful to be here. And, you know, again, I said we're not perfect, but we're, we're good. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, one of the uh, things I wanted to talk about is that we, we do have, um, we walk in the pride parade every year and, um, for a lot of our newcomers, that's the first pride parade they've ever, ever experienced. Um, and we've had some of our newcomers like brought to tears when they mm-hmm. like, you know, are mm-hmm. walking in the streets and there's thousands and thousands of people and everyone's wearing a rainbow flag. And mm-hmm. because that's the first time that they've ever seen a collective group of openly queer people and, you know, allies supporting them and businesses getting involved and, and that's sort of a first, um, for them. So definitely being able to be more open, um, without sort of risk of, of, mm-hmm. you know, criminalization is, mm-hmm. is definitely, um, a big piece, but oftentimes it's challenging to come here because there are still like communities that have Ugandan folks, for example, who may have the same values that people have in the country of Uganda. Right. Um, so coming here, trying to integrate with their home community isn't always easy because, they might hold those those same values where um, you know they don't think that it's okay to be um, openly gay, mm-hmm. um, and so we do have to be careful about you know wanting to encourage them to you know connect with people from their own culture living here, but also being careful that you know they they may have those same values, mm-hmm. um, unfortunately. Um, so that's that's a bit of an identity challenge, I guess, you know, wanting to be able to be with people who speak your language and who look like you and who listen to the same music as you and eat the same food, but still also wanting to, you know, 
come to Canada so you can be openly mm-hmm. um, queer, basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, and this desire to be uh, to be openly queer, to be to come out of the closet, mm-hmm. uh, as we would put it, um, and be open—that's mm-hmm. something that you would say is important to people across the board. You haven't, yeah. There haven't yeah. been instances where people said this whole coming out business—that's. N- not a part of my culture or something that I hold as valuable. Yeah, well, I guess it's a because little... sometimes it's labeled as Western, as a Western um, sure value. Yeah, to, to that we should all come out of the closet and um, identify, you know, with our sexual or gender identities and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. This is why I'm asking. Yeah, and again, I, I can't speak for everyone. I think it's different for for all of the people who have come um, with us. Yep. Um, but as well. There is no presumption that we don't know. Like, they have to basically prove that they are queer yes. in order to even be considered as a refugee who's being persecuted for these reasons. Yes. So that's, that's interesting, interesting as yes. well. Yeah, yeah. Um, so trying to prove that you're gay when you're in a position where you could still be criminalized for being gay uh-huh. um, is challenging, um, but it also means that they get identified specifically as being queer um, on this BVOR list that we have. So... They know that we know that they are queer before yes. they even get here, which some people like and, right. you know, maybe some people don't. Um, but there's kind of no doubt about it when they come to us that, you know, they're coming through mm-hmm. an organization that's called Rainbow Refugees. Right. So, right. so there's something about the whole process from, um, you know, the filtering through for people who can prove, quote unquote, prove that they're yeah. queer. Um, to the approaching an organization like yours or, you know, having a relationship with an organization like yours that would um, that would tend to lead to interacting with people who would feel like the being out and coming mm-hmm. out and, and all of that is um, an important aspect of their experience. Yeah. They would tend to be the ones who you would um, come into contact with, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, even if they're reaching out to us, let's say, like over Facebook. Yeah. I mean, they just say, like, I am a gay man living yeah, exactly. here. exactly please help me. Like, you know, they have to kind of tell us that. So that almost takes away that, you know, coming out of the closet experience um, that, you know, we often have because it's just already known to us, basically. Right. Um, So tell us how one goes about proving that one is LGBTQI+. Yeah. um, Interesting process. I have not experienced it, obviously, so I don't know exactly, but often it's um, like photos of people who you've had relationships with, um, anecdotes from other people, um, but it is very challenging, like I said, because a lot of these people are originally being criminalized because of this, so it's dangerous for them to have photos of them, let's say, like in a same-sex relationship, Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. if someone found that, they could be criminalized. Right. So... um, this is a really tricky issue because obviously you don't want people exploiting the system and, mm-hmm. you know, lying and saying that they identify as queer to sort of like jump the queue basically. Um, but I know people do that for, for obvious desperate reasons. Um, but there, you know, there does have to be something in place, but mm-hmm. you know, how do you, how do you prove that you're queer? Right. right. Like <laughs> right. it means different things to different people and, you know, when you're in a vulnerable situation, do you even have anything physically that, mm-hmm. that shows that, that you are in fact 
you know, what you say you are. It's really tricky. And is there a definition of queerness that um, the that would be used for the purposes of these processes? Mm-hmm. So what what is the thing that you're trying to prove? How is the thing that you're trying to prove defined in the first place? Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't really know the answer to that. I know that um, being persecuted because of gender identity um, and sexual orientation is kind of the biggest pieces. So um, trans folks um, and, you know, gay or bisexual um, people. But I mean, other than that, it's very tricky. Like Uh they use not really a fluid definition of queer, but it's very hard, I guess, a hard definition of, you know, you're either gay or you're trans or that's it. Right. Um, So it's not clear whether it's about, you know, your identity, your fantasies, your Mm -hmm. relationships, your, you know, that that part isn't clear. How do you prove that? You know, (laughs) exactly. And so it has to be proven, first of all, that the person is queer. Mm -hmm. And second of all, that they're being persecuted because they're queer, yeah, and so um, for the for the purposes of their status as refugee claimants, if somebody were to say that they weren't queer but they were persecuted because they were seen as queer, would mm. that mm-hmm. do you know if that would count? Or I'm sort of getting into nitty gritty yeah. aspects. Of I don't policy know that, actually. Yeah, because uh-huh. um, I mean, at the stage that we're usually um, interacting with folks, like they literally just get a stamp on their application that says LGBTQI+, and right. that's all we get. We don't really know anything about that unless they how disclose it to us. Um, so we don't know how it happened. We don't really even know anything. We just get their name, their age, language is spoken, and then that LGBTQI identity. But it doesn't say anything beyond that. It right. doesn't say, you know, like, that's not how they want to be identified necessarily. It's just, like, that's their category. Uh-huh. They get that stamp. Uh-huh. So... You know, we don't know if they're a trans woman, if they're bisexual. Like, we have no idea until right. they they tell us. Um, how is your organization doing in terms of funding, resources? Yeah, um, we are, like I said, like a, a nonprofit society. We don't have any full-time staff, um, but we are trying to get additional funding so that hopefully we could get a full-time staff person, which would be really lovely. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're pretty much dependent on, um, you know, individual sponsors, corporate sponsors, um, donations, estates, mm-hmm. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to disclose anything, but I, we're doing relatively well. Um, but, you know, we host regular fundraisers all the time to try and help raise money. Um, Do you have anything coming up that we should know about? Um, nothing coming up. We will have um, an event at Pride. We always host um, a panel discussion, usually talking about, um, you know, marginalized communities within the LGBTQI label, um, usually focusing at least a little bit on refugees, but also other communities like indigenous folks, black folks, um, women, etc. cetera. Um, so we'll be at Pride. Um, okay. We just had an event um, around the holiday time where we partnered with um, Good Robot, and they donated um, a portion of their proceeds from all the beer that they sold. And um, so that's great. So we do get to work with local businesses every so often mm-hmm. to, to get donations from them too. But we've been really, really fortunate um, to have lots of just spontaneous donations from businesses and, mm-hmm. and individuals as well. So um, very lucky. And yeah. if people who aren't in a position to donate a few thousand dollars, but who would like to help, um, you know, came to you and said, what can I do? What yeah. would you suggest? Yeah, um, 
Well, we do have um, lots of volunteers who we love to get involved, um, particularly around um, settlement activities. So when Mm -hmm. someone comes to Canada, um, you know, we need help moving furniture, collecting furniture, um, you know, even just having people to socialize um, with our newcomers, you know, like show them Halifax and and where the grocery stores are and how the bus system works and Mm -hmm. and all these things. So there's lots of opportunities for volunteering. Um, And, you know, even just following us on Twitter, Facebook, we have Twitter, Facebook and a website and, you know, staying along with us, keeping in touch and, you know, sharing any of our our materials is always helpful. What kinds of things does a person need to know to effectively support um, one of the refugees that comes in through your organization? So if somebody says, I'll I'll show people around Halifax, you know, what knowledge do they need to bring with them? Mm -hmm. I mean, we try and be super open and welcome everyone, regardless of, you know, gender identity, experience, sexuality, whatever. Like, we're happy to have anyone. Um, But just sort of being cognizant of of the experiences that these folks may have had – and and just being kind of open and flexible and kind um, is kind of all that we ask. <laughs> Other than that, you know, um, it's not really different from hanging out with you or I. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. So we just like to, you know, we do a little bit of training if you do want to volunteer with us just to sort of explain how the refugee process works so you're a little more informed. But other than that, we take everybody mm-hmm. and anybody. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, and my last question is, um, about what you've learned in your time with the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I've learned that these are some of the most incredible, resilient people that I've ever met and worked with. Um, every single person has a crazy, um, story with lots of ups and downs. And a lot of these people have experienced things that we will probably never, ever see in our lifetime, which is a very fortunate thing. Um, but despite all of the challenges that came, you know, before they were refugees, during their time as refugees, um, and, and during that kind of transition settlement period here, um, our folks are always so kind and grateful to us Mm -hmm. and, and, um, they're so strong and Mm -hmm. amazing. Um, yeah, which is why I still work work and do the research I do. Um, yeah, you know, been through more than I could ever imagine, but just mm-hmm. the kindest people. Yeah, yeah. So really lucky and grateful to have the opportunity to work with Rainbow Refugees and always looking for volunteers if anyone else wants to join us. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if you got some volunteers from the class. Um, So thank you so much, Emma, for joining us and uh, telling telling us about the work of the Rainbow Refugee Association of Nova Scotia. It's been very interesting, um, and I look forward to following um, the activities of the organization in the future. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. No.